2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. So my name is Mittul. I am a lecturer at RMIT. And I come from uh, architecture uh, background, but work in climate change adaptation area. So today we are here to discuss what does it mean to be living in a climate of change. And for those who are living in cities, working in cities, or shaping cities, what does it mean to be living in such a changing world? Do we need a shift in our thinking? Or do we just keep living the way we used to? So what does it mean to be living in a climate of change. Um, this quote stuck with me from Antonio Guterres from UN Secretary General. Um, he said, if I had to select one sentence to describe the state of the world, I would say we are in a world in which global challenges are more and more integrated. One thing happens here and the change is seen somewhere else, impact is seen somewhere else. And the responses are more and more fragmented and if this is not reversed, it is a recipe for disaster. Urbanization, we know more than 50% of population lives in cities, and we have passed that uh, mark of um, population. Look at the, uh, the greenhouse gas CO2 emissions. Since human existence, it has just skyrocketed in the last 100 years or so. And we have experienced a cascade of events, one following the other in, since just uh, November this year. Bushfires followed by smoke haze, followed by hail. And a colleague of mine, she uh, works with IPCC and said that, let's just hope we are not stuck in this feedback loop and not see the same cycle again. So there are ways in which uh, researchers have suggested we can move from the current state that we are in through adaptation um, into a different state. And that involves a spectrum of approaches. Resilience, the term that we've used, uh, you, we have heard quite a bit in media lately. Um, transition which is having incremental steps, small steps. We don't know how the future is. It's uncertain. We don't have much control over it either. So we don't know the actions we'll take, what impact it will have. Will it lead to the change we are expecting or not? And that's why incremental change is very important. Um, it's no way suggesting that we need to experiment with communities, but we need to be mindful that it's not there's no silver bullet that will address the challenge. And that might lead to transformational challenge. That's the radical change. Radical change won't occur uh, overnight. But there is, if we rush 
um, there is also potential for maladaptation. So um, now our PM has also um, joined the discussion on uh, using the term resilience and adaptation after the recent bushfires. But does he actually mean uh, the resilience in the way it has been used until now? That's highly questionable. And I'll, sh I'll, I'll show you what. Um, the insurance, the, the global financial institutions, various industry bodies are also talking about resilience. And we will discuss about resilience and transformations throughout the talk today. In the recent climate summit that happened over the last weekend, there's a declaration and a call for safe climate. And again, they are also saying it calls for a new approach to climate action. And the fourth priority action is integrating adaptation and resilience. So over multiple years, over decades, um, various researchers have put this together. And this I have taken from Stockholm Resilience Center, that the shocks and stresses in terms of immediate uh, bushfires or sea level rise, what we see, uh, the, the stresses that are building up over time in terms of poverty, they are just the symptoms. And the way our prime minister is using resilience is to address this symptomatic issue of shocks and stresses. But that's not what will actually lead to adaptation. We need to understand deep-rooted systemic root causes which could be rooted in political system, which could be rooted in economy or social values, mental values and worldviews. So how do we tailor our actions such that cities, which actually contribute the highest amount of uh, CO2 emissions through use of energy, transport, building material, resource extraction, waste production, can actually be reversed? And so the future can be either dystopic or it could be something uh, very um, utopic. But these are the two extremes. But of course, we have to carve pathways towards a future we want. And to discuss this, I'm joined by a panel of um, experts uh, from RMIT and from industry who work in shaping of cities. Um, first up, Usha Ayaranika. She is a professor in property construction and management uh, at RMIT. And she works with, uh, at building scale and how they can be sustainable, as well as working on circular economy. Andrew Butt, he is the associate dean of sustainability and urban planning. And he has worked extensively on peri-urban um, growth boundaries, as well as um, in planning area. Georgia Gerard, and she is part of ICON at RMIT and works in biodiversity, inclusion of biodiversity in planning of cities. Susie Maloney, she is um, a part of Center for Urban Research, and she works in the area of messy governance in, when we talk about adaptation. And um, she works with Candice as well, who is from Melbourne uh, City Council. And 
Together, they will discuss. Uh, Candice is um, climate change and sustainability officer at Melbourne City Council. And she'll discuss what actually declaring climate emergency means and how um, industry uh, or councils could work collaboratively with in, uh, researchers. So I'll pass to Usha. Thank you, Mitchell, for the introduction. And um, we don't have any other stragglers there, so that's fine. Okay, so um, you've got a set of figures here in relation to the impact that buildings have on the planet, starting from the impact that it has on GDP and therefore employment. And often um, buildings and construction are the litmus test of how economies are performing across the world. Um, but of course, the very act of building and construction has an impact. It has an impact on the land, it has an impact on the people, it has an impact on carbon dioxide emissions, it has an impact on mobility patterns, and so on. Do you guys want to come in? There's seats at the back. In the limited amount of time that I've been allocated, I'm going to try and um, hopefully make you think a little bit about what we as citizens of this planet are, are contributing to, or where are, the, where are the areas of impact that we need to be mindful of when we're talking about buildings? So traditionally, buildings are seen as places to live, work, and play. Um, they may be considered as just places of shelter, but we know, especially when we look at uh, Aboriginal history and the way our First Nations people lived, they didn't have buildings, they had shelters. And they used the land very wisely, and they basically touched the earth very lightly with what they did. Of course, with the advent of industrialization that has changed, and buildings, and the process of building, the process of construction has become... Um, much more dynamic, it's become much more fast, and, and of course it's also become a source of employment, so we have to be mindful of that as well. The Australian dream, particularly from a homeowner perspective, is a quarter-acre block. Is that dream realistic? Facing Australia challenges, of course, as Mitchell has already mentioned in terms of climate change, but we're also living with the 30, 40 year time cycle of mitigation. So we have to seriously start thinking about how do we reduce our use on resources? So how do we maximize resource efficiency? So while we've got these arguments and building construction codes and policies, looking at how do we reduce the impact on the environment at the same time, we also need to start thinking about adaptation issues. So adaptation in relation to extremes of weather, in relation to bushfires. Um, and if you look at some of the island countries in particular, the very existence of their countries itself. So I hope that is a bit of a thought-provoking idea for you in terms of the quarter-acre block and where we as Melbournians, or we as citizens of this planet, where does it take us into the future and the choices and the decisions that we might make in terms of where we live, in terms of the choices we make about um, the food we eat, what we use in terms of mobility, 
And that, I hope, is a good segue for Andrew because he's going to talk about planning. So over to you, Andrew. I'm going to just stay seated. Um, so thanks for that, Isha. Um, so I just wanted to talk quickly about a premise. I'm basically I'm putting forward a premise that the planning system we have isn't capable of dealing with this. So I, I say this as someone who's entering my fourth decade of working in planning, um, and it's a, it's a problematic thing for me to think about as a system of, of public decision-making and public accountability that I feel doesn't do the job we need to do when we think about climate change and climate adaptation. I'm showing you a photo here where I think it displays some issues where we understand that the decisions we are making about the city we live in, and this is of course both the city we live in and the city yet to be, that are really maladaptive decisions. They're decisions where we're not taking into account the evidence we have about how people should be moving around, how we should be protecting farmland, how we should be thinking about localness in a city of up to 8 million people in the near, very near future. But it also tells us something about a, a decision-making system that, notwithstanding the potential of corruption that we've seen very recently, is one that is not very good at taking on board evidence about uncertainty or precaution. So a system where the evidence we have is not being listened to and the evidence that requires us to rethink that whether past practice actually works or whether it should continue is one that we're not actually very good at. It's a system which is designed to do the things we've been doing for a long time and in some ways to make that an easy process. But we're in a situation where we need to make some very difficult processes about how we might live and how the city might work. So the other side to that, of course, is that we're in a situation where many of our decisions about city-shaping city decisions, if you like, sit outside of what we might consider to be good planning process anyway. The planning process I just told you wasn't very good. Uh, in this instance, examples like Transurban's uh, role in the Westgate Tunnel Project is just a highly symbolic examples of, of what otherwise is a, a process of decision-making that is uh, caught up in some vested interests, and those vested interests have very short-term views about how we should do things. So road and transport planning, housing development on our fringe, and many of the, the decisions about, for example, housing and the forms of housing, and maybe you can talk to this later, right in this very neighbourhood we're in right now, are made without very strong expectations about a future that is different to the, pre the present. Of course, things aren't all imperfect. And they, these lots here, well, they're considerably smaller than, you know, one root or a quarter of an acre. These are, these are houses that have been recently built at quite high densities. And they're houses which are showing us what local energy production is. Yet, of course, they've also got black roofs. They're houses which are built in environments where there's limited access to jobs. There's limited access to transport alternatives. So we have a planning system which I suspect knows the things it should do uh, and where people participating in it know the things we should do. But there's a, there's a way of thinking about how decisions should be made and what evidence is that makes those things very difficult to achieve. Okay, so I want to start by taking a bit of an indulgent moment um, to walk you through a future that I hope to see. So just if you want to close your eyes or enjoy this uh, lovely rendered image of, of a better adapted future. And I'll take you through a morning in the future. So you wake up to the sound of the grey butcher birds and little red wattle birds. Some people aren't fond of their calls, but you've come to associate them with home. 
After showering, you go downstairs to the kitchen. While waiting for your toast, you notice that the Physophilia in your backyard is flowering and the tree is alive with insects and little brown birds that move too quickly to be identified, all coming in for a good feed. You head up towards the local train station. It's summer, but it rained overnight. The air is fresh and the ground is wet, but not slippery or muddy. Feeling energetic, you take a small leap over the vegetated swale and remember how just months ago you could hear the chirruping of tiny frogs that had taken up residence. The local kids had spent hours looking for them up and down the street. You cross the road to walk through the local park. Since the council has enhanced the habitat there, the noisy miners that were harassing the other birds have backed right off and you've noticed more and more little birds. You hear the high-pitched twittering of the superb fairy wrens in the bushes before you see them. A blue male and four jenny wrens. You just love their twiggy little legs. As you approach the station, you admire the established street trees and thank for a moment the visionary planners that had planted them all those years ago. You know that as you walk home later on, you'll be even more grateful for the relief they provide from the searing heat of the summer sun. As your train approaches, you're rejuvenated and relaxed and feel good about the fact that you've already received about half of the daily dose of nature recommended by scientists just on your way to work. So what I've described just then is, a, is the type of city that I want to be living in in a future of climate change and uncertainty. It's one where nature is seamlessly integrated across private and public space and where residents have incidental opportunistic um, experiences in nature as they go about their lives. So we know that incorporating nature into cities is important. Vegetation is critical for maintaining livability, reducing the urban heat island and mitigating flash flood events. But contact with nature also provides a really remarkable range of benefits for humans as well. From reducing rates of heart disease and high blood pressure, to improving the cognitive development of children and enhancing well-being. But it's not just nature that's important. Cities are going to be more resilient and adaptable to a changing climate and an uncertain future, and the people will be better off in those cities if that nature is biodiverse. So if we know all this, then why don't we see cities that look more like this? And I think the answer is kind of simple in a way. We have to prioritise nature and we have to plan for nature, and both of those things we do really badly at the moment. Incorporating everyday biodiverse nature um, into cities takes foresight and innovative design and planning. It won't happen if we stick to the siloed approaches we currently have, where, for example, environmental planners might be planning a magnificent biodiverse uh, boulevard in exactly the same place as the infrastructure engineers are planning to lay underground utilities. So, of course, I say it's quite simple, but in reality, it's, it's pretty complex what I'm calling for, this proper integrated planning um, in which biodiverse nature is prioritised. It's going to require coordination and collaboration across many different stakeholders. And I think, importantly, in the early stages, it's going to provide some really bold, brave developers and planners to go out there and set up the exemplars that, that make people realise this is possible. Um, that was delightful. Thank you, Georgia. Um, well, as Georgia has sort of um, helped us visualise her idea of what a future might look like, I mean, in a way, perhaps that's what um, I'm, I'm trying to start with here. Um, what I would like to see is that we talk about just adaptation and transformation. Um, 
And I've got a quote at the top here from uh, Professor David Schlossberg. Um, and he talks about the importance of a capabilities approach to adaptation. Here he says, for climate change in particular, undermining environmental functioning threatens the systems that support a whole range of human capabilities, from housing to health to participation in political decision-making itself. The way we plan our cities must prioritise building our human and ecological capabilities. And this includes nature-based solutions, as Georgia was talking about, and investing in affordable and sustainable housing and sustainable transport and design. And we know that climate change is impacting the most vulnerable. And we also know that the services and organisations that they rely on are also impacted by climate change, and they are vulnerable themselves. So this framing of adaptation to climate change focuses not only on risks, uh, but also on climate justice and a concern for the most vulnerable. And this, to me, is what it means to be transformative. To respond to those risks in a transformative way is to prioritise the building of human and ecological capabilities. So when we make justice and equity a primary focus of planning our cities, this changes the way we think about adaptation in both the processes we adopt and the outcomes we seek to achieve. So importantly, this means we need to criti critically engage with, and the, third, the second quote there, we need to critically engage with power, injustice and inequality. And this is also what it means to be transformative. Mittel asked me to talk about adaptation governance, but given that we've got three minutes, I thought I'm not, I'm not going to provide for definitions or literature or anything. There's a lot out there if you're interested in reading about adaptation governance. Um, but there's also a lot going on out in the world outside this room. So um, I guess what I wanted to do was just highlight some of the things we're doing at RMIT uh, to perhaps describe the messiness of it. And I mean messy not in a negative way. I have a messy house. I can deal with that. Um, but messiness is part of what we do. Um, and, and the issue is how do we make sense of that? How do we connect up what we are doing and how do we think about things in an integrated and coordinated way and that requires collaboration. So the sort of research that I've been doing, I have a background in planning, I teach into the planning program but I've been focused on sustainability and then more recently on climate change. Um, and so what I've been looking at is climate change governance and the multi-level nature of climate change governance, but I've been particularly interested in what's going on at the local scale and at the regional scale. Who's doing what? How are they doing it? How are they working together? Um, and what challenges do they face? Um, and, and I mean, what we do know from the literature and just from working with people out there is that it is a highly challenging policy space to be in. Uh, climate change cuts across all areas of government. But we do exist in silos, as we've kind of highlighted. Andrew hit the nail on the head several times in his three minutes. Um, and as did Usha and Georgia, I think, highlighting some of the key challenges. Um, so we are familiar with working across um, silos, particularly if you work in planning, health, energy, sustainability, or climate change. Um, so these kinds of forums are important. Um, and talking together across these silos is really important. And that's what we're trying to do. And, and um, uh, well, we, what, what has happened as a result of all of this messiness is that um, myself and some colleagues, Karen Bosomworth, Bronwyn Lay, and others at RMIT, have set up this uh, climate change exchange. We launched it last year. We have a fledgling website. We have a Twitter account. We sort of exist. Um, but we're a bunch of people trying to work with a whole lot of different organizations. 
And some of the things we're doing sits across what's on this screen. This nowhere near demonstrates what's going on around adaptation. But on the bottom left, you'll see we have got a Climate Change Act in Victoria, and that's a good thing. Uh, not every state has one. Um, and in that act, there are a bunch of scheduled acts, and that's great, but the Planning and Environment Act is not in that, um, and that's, an, that's a notable omission. Um, that diagram there with the circle is something from DELP, and that maps out what they're doing around adaptation, and we've been working with them on various things. Um, above that, you've got the Victorian Climate Change Adaptation Framework, and next to that, the Adaptation um, Strategy. Next to that, you've got VCOS's Climate for Fairness that was launched um, last year. And that really sets out a fantastic, um, I, would, I would say, climate just future and worth having a look at. Um, down the bottom here is a project we've been doing with the Western Alliance for Greenhouse Action um, for many years. And right now, we have 20 local governments in a network trying to develop, in fact, have developed, um, an online tool to help local governments track their progress on climate change. Above that, you've got Jesuit Social Services and a picture of their eco-hub, and that's how they're building the capabilities of their participants around ecological practices. And above that, you've got the Hotspots fact sheet from the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, and that's another project we're doing around working with health organisations who are trying to support vulnerable populations um, deal with heat stress. So just as an illustration of the multi-dimensional, multi-sector nature of adaptation governance, and that's just the sort of stuff we know. That's, there's a lot more out there. My last two seconds. Did you give me a 10-second warning? Ages ago. <laughs> Sorry, Anthony. This is me finishing up with... Um, uh, this is our climate change exchange, and if you want to find out a little bit more about that, um, we'd be very happy to chat to you. But we have a Twitter account. We feel very proud of ourselves. And someone's Twittering, Bronwyn, I believe, over there. Uh, but the essence of the climate change exchange is to bring research, practice, and capability building together. And I'm now done. But I'll hand over to Canvas, who's one of our fantastic partners. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so hopefully what I'm about to talk about um, is a nice sort of conclusion maybe to some of the topics that have been discussed. Um, so I was going to focus on talking about um, what does it mean for a council to declare a climate emergency? So last year, City of Melbourne, our council uh, declared a climate and biodiversity emergency. And last night, uh, our response, so the organisation's response to that declaration went to Future Melbourne Committee and was unanimously endorsed, which was fantastic. Um, but now that that's happened, what does that actually mean? Uh, so for us, when we talk about emergency, or I suppose for anyone to talk about an emergency, what does that mean? The first thing that comes to mind is about how you, the urgency and the resourcing that you de dedicate to that particular event, disaster, crisis, whatever it might be. Um, and in this case, it's climate change. So for us, um, it's very much com, sorry, I'm going to just say com, that means you, Melbourne. Um, so for us, it means that the whole organisation has a role to play in responding to climate change. Uh, and this includes uh, not just reducing emissions, but also at the same time adapting to adapting to climate change impacts because we're actually already experiencing them. And I think the this summer and that slide Mitchell had up with the the hail and the fire, bushfires and the um, smoke haze shows uh, that 
how often the frequency of these events um, is increasing. So for us, and I think uh, Susie touched on about a uh, social uh, or inclusive and just transition, um, and for us, that's actually really important in terms of us accelerating our response. Um, and so I thought I would just mention, and this is actually online, if you want to see our response, it's on our, um, our website under future Melbourne committee meetings, you can see our paper. Um, so we have three principles that we're applying, one being about transparency and accountability, and so that's communicating the scale of the crisis and the re effort required uh, to respond. Uh, the second one is around rapid and ambitious action, and so that's accelerating the transition from fossil fuels, uh, being coal, oil and gas. And then our third principle is social justice and inclusion, so ensuring that there is a plan to support workers, communities and industries throughout the transition. And for us, that's very, very important to make sure our whole community, um, you know, there's quite a lot of uh, income inequality across the city and so it's very important for us to make sure that we're supporting every single resident and worker um, who lives but also works and enjoys the city, um, that we support uh, support them as well. Uh, we do face some challenges though um, in how we uh, respond and I think it's all been touched on in terms of planning, so how we operate in silos. And so we've identified 10 priority actions uh, at Council, um, which I won't read out but they are online if you want to go and check it out. Um, and this focuses on embedding Adam, embedding climate change consideration into all our decision making across council, um, advocating to state and federal governments uh, for bolder action around emissions reduction and adaptation. Uh, it's also um, us looking at uh, how we, so it also includes circular economy and waste, and so touched on about construction and built form, um, incorporating decision, uh, adaptation decision making into those processes as well. Um, and then other things around, yeah, transitioning from fossil fuels, accelerating uh, bike lanes in terms of transport, moving to more sustainable transport. Um, so, yeah, for us, it's very much doing it across the whole organisation. Um, and so I sit in the Climate Change Action Branch and we work uh, with all areas within our organisation um, to now deliver this subject to planning, um, our planning and budget processes. So that's another challenge uh, in terms of resourcing, but having the support of council and also the community to respond to climate change, um, it will hold us to account and therefore hopefully we will see it through our, our budget planning um, for the next four, ten and so on years. Questions? Thank you for leaving us with provocations. I've started getting questions on Slido already. Uh, please feel free to uh, like the questions if you wish them to be answered. And I'll invite Bronwyn and uh, Katrina. They'll be, my, they'll be holding mics. And just make sure it, it flashes, there's a button, it flashes green when you uh, want to ask question. And just to let you know that we are only taking questions, uh, something that ends with a question mark. And if, uh, if you go more than one minute, uh, they will, they'll try to come closer to you and say, please hand over the mic or, or give you a hug if they feel comfortable. <laughs> but um, 
I think we'll start with this first question as to how to decide whether an action is justified or not. How do we define justice and equity? That's a really easy question to start with. Thanks for that. Um, I mean, I think the principles of justice are clearly um, something that need to be front and centre when we start thinking about the decisions we make. Um, and, in, in, and by that, I mean um, issues of procedural justice, recognition and distribution. But um, I think uh, another key question and, and a lot of what's being talked about in the urban resilience or resilience literature right now is bringing issues of politics into our decision making. That the changes we're trying to make are not technological, but they're socio-technical and they're social, really. And so that means we have to include um, a lot of different people in it. And that's nothing new to urban planning. Um, those who've been in the planning space uh, and, and the just planning space have always talked about participatory planning processes and it's something that we're challenged with but we have to keep persisting with. But I think when we look at and, and see some of the discourse around adaptation and resilience right now, a key thing that we have to keep in mind is who's in the room asking these questions, um, who's not in the room, um, who, who's involved in the decision making. Because we know that climate change is impacting on all of us, but as I said, in particular on the most vulnerable and how are they in the room making decisions. So the, the whole recovery process post bushfire does raise questions about who's going to be involved in that recovery process. Mm. who in communities will be represented and, and speaking and whose voice will be heard. So I think to ask if, uh, if we're adapting in a just way, they're the questions we have to put front and centre. I just wanted to add briefly, because I think one of the things that we don't often talk about or acknowledge in cities is that cities are actually really important places, particularly in Australia, for species that aren't humans. And there are a number of species in Australia that are critically endangered that only exist in our major cities. And so these cities are entirely dependent on the decisions that we make about the future of our cities for their survival. Do you want to answer, Candice? Uh, yeah, I was just going to add um, something that I suppose gives me hope in this space is um, the Local Government Act is currently being amended or reviewed and um, as part of that uh, there'll be a requirement for local governments to engage with communities uh, more and through a more like deliberative democracy type process um, and it's something that at City of Melbourne um, we believe in and we actually have our so our future Melbourne uh, 2026 it's our community driven plan um, which was established uh, through a deliberative democracy process. We had a citizen's jury. I think it was something like 1,500 people from across Melbourne were involved. Um, and that actually so that set out nine goals for the city. Um, and the first goal actually being about a city that cares for the environment. And council then adopted those goals as our council plan goals. So that's the sort of thing that I think is very, very important to our decision-making um, and having strong, like that vision of the community embedded in our work um, and that support, I'm quite hopeful that we'll start to see more of that and hopefully that will help shape um, more livable cities for everyone. Just to add to that, um, recently after bushfires, there's a lot of discussion about uh, using Indigenous techniques for managing bush, but that is a very technical uh, or appropriation of Indigenous knowledge. It's not saying that let's sit together and 
uh, and think about bushfires together. So that would be a just way to go ahead, not just saying we'll use your one of the techniques and apply it. Okay, so um, the next question is, um, is 100% maximized use of space and land desirable or necessary in the future? Do you want to, both of you, Andrew and Usha? I've got a mic here. Um, I, I presume I'm, I'm interpreting what the question might mean, but I mean, in a sense, we're looking at efficiencies. And I showed you a photograph of, an aerial photograph of some relatively high densities of housing development, higher densities than we've seen typically for pretty much most of the 20th century. But to, to get back to those sorts of housing densities, you have to look at housing that was built before the 1920s. And that's become quite normal in Melbourne's fringe now. Um, but, but absent, of course, from that is the sorts of um, public realm treatments that we even saw in those eras too, and, and also the diversity of land uses. So, I mean, to me, if, if we're taking the question as, is an adaptive city one that is at high density, where the sorts of wasteful land uses that we've seen in much of the 20th century, which has also led to issues around transport technologies and you know, community life, then I suspect that we, we in fact can look at higher densities than what we've looked at. But we've, we've gone for two solutions automatically. One is high-rise development, which has a whole host of attendant problems around energy use particularly, um, apart from all the issues of sociality and, and community life that we might think about. And the other model is to look at the developments of suburban forms which are just absent the very values of suburban forms once had, which is green space. So, so we've looked at either of those extremes. I mean, um, if the other question is, of course, what should we do about sort of a, a never-ending urbanism, um, I'm not sure what the answer is to that because we've got a, a problem of what we do with nine billion people and particularly what we do when the, when the dominant um, economies are urban and when, particularly when... Um, agricultural production and food production is something that doesn't need people very much, um, then I suspect we have got some serious problems about imagining what future urban form looks like. But you might like to talk about... Thank you, Andrew. Um, I suppose one way to respond to that question is Australia is not Singapore or Hong Kong. So again, in terms of the density um, argument. However, we do, we do have a lot of space. Um, but the more we spread out the more we're doing ourselves a disservice because you have to, you've, and particularly for people that are working in the cities and living 50 or 60 kilometres out, travel is a problem. And then with that comes attendant issues of mobility, quality of life, um, and so on. But added to that also, I, I feel that again, using Singapore as an example, despite having high densities in Singapore, they have done some fantastic... Um, policies and governance around the urban heat island effect. So yes, um, you know, high densities does have a negative uh, impact in terms of energy use, in terms of increased temperatures within within our built-up areas. But also, they have um, 
reacted to this problem or responded to this problem by looking at how can we try and reduce the impact of the temperatures by having greening on, on, the, on the surfaces of these buildings. They've also started looking at um, how can you grow food in some of these roof areas, not just with traditional urban greening, but also using aeroponics. So I think there are opportunities and there are solutions, but this requires discussion, collaboration, dialogue, and this is where some of the governance issues comes in, allowing opportunities for people to make that choice and make those decisions while considering the holistic impact of what else is going on. We can look at cities as ecosystems uh, and, and a particularly brittle ecosystem because everything comes as far as uh, sustaining the city. Uh, a lot of the living mechanisms comes from outside the city, i.e. water and, uh, and food. And I was uh, curious to know if you had looked towards nature and see how nature was actually building resilience in the way it builds ecosystems and how we could apply that to, to the city and, and, the, and the planning uh, side of things. Thank you. I'm going to give that to Georgia. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm not sure that I can. I always struggle with questions like this because coming from an ecology background, I think of ecosystems as being a very particular thing and I often struggle to think of a city as being an ecosystem, but I do understand what you mean. Um, maybe if you could repeat the actual question part of the question. The question would be, how can we learn from nature as to how to build resilience in our cities? Um, uh, one way that I think we can learn from nature um, is to be really diverse in our thinking. And I think one of the things we tend to do is look for the solution and then apply that across the city. And actually what we know about nature is that it's much more resilient to shocks and much more adaptable if it's diverse. Um, and that diversity, I think, is really actually one of the key things to the resilience. So I think looking for diverse solutions um, that mean that in one year, this solution is going to do really well, and in the next year, it might be a different type of solution. And applying those solutions so that they're fit for the context and the place that they're, that they're put in place. I think that would be where I would look to nature. Maybe Susie, want to add? Oh, I'll pass it. Um, I think it's an interesting question and it's one that's kind of asked in the, you know, the resilience literature and I was kind of referring to urban resilience and that there's a sort of a growing literature around that right now um, because resilience is bringing um, ecological thinking into social systems and so then the response to that is to think about cities and societies as socio-ecological, which I think is important and I don't think we think like that as planners. I think we have elements of that sort of thinking but I think there's a lot further we, we need to go in thinking about planning as a socio-ecological process. So I think from that point of view, I think there's lots we can learn, but the, the urban literature, which kind of comes out of decades of, of um, politics thinking around cities, what's, what's missing from that is um, the people and the politics and the power. And so you have to add that into that equation of socio-ecological thinking um, when you apply it to cities. I guess that's all I would add to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that uh, talking about what we can learn from nature um, is very important because I suppose referring to nature-based solutions in terms of adaptation in cities, uh, there's huge opportunities in this space and it's something that City of Melbourne 
uh, are doing, but also hoping to do more of how we integrate nature into the city. And through some of our strategies, our nature in the city strategy, which is our biodiversity um, strategy, and also our urban forest strategy, our integrated water management plan, in all of these plans and strategies, we talk about how we can bring in what we call blue-green infrastructure into the city um, to help mitigate flood impacts, urban heat. Uh, it also provides the biodiversity um, benefits as well. It, it's all the multiple benefits that you get from it. Um, how we can integrate that into public realm design. Um, so it's not just in our open space, but also in our streetscapes. Uh, diversity is really important. And I think our urban forest area do this really well, where they've done lots of research around uh, what we call climate future trees, tree species. So uh, understanding that the climate we're expecting in the future in terms of warmer temperatures, our current tree stock might not survive um, when it gets warmer. So looking at what different species we can plant that will cope in future climate to ensure that uh, we've got over 70,000 trees across the municipality that um, we don't lose those because all the cooling benefits and all the other things that they provide, um, it would be maladaptive of us to, to not build that resilience. Um, I think water is also something that my team focuses on a lot and uh, something that's been traditionally done in terms of, I suppose, a more traditional engineering approach around pumps and pipes. We tend to hide water away. Water being a very natural moving uh, thing, um, we want to celebrate water in the landscape more and bring back that nature element to the city where, uh, for example, Elizabeth Street used to be a creek. Um, we've covered it in concrete and now Elizabeth Street every time we have a massive rain event floods. So how can we incorporate more natural water sensitive urban design uh, solutions into our streetscapes and um, buildings through green roofs, etc.? Um, how can we incorporate these into our built form uh, to help mitigate those, the risks that come from um, climate change impacts? So uh, we're, and we're getting there, but uh, again, I suppose it comes back to those silos. So yeah, working across the different areas of the organisation to make sure all those things are considered, um, and the the data and evidence base that we can build to support that is is really important as well. Thank you so much. It was such a good question. That's the only lens through which we all intend to see cities. Do you want to add something about circular economy there uh, and how we deal with waste? Thanks, Mitchell. Um, so I think uh, it's, it's a good question, and, and most of the responses have been looking at the physical side of things. So using nature as an example, um, but, f but you know, the response is a physical response in terms of the cities itself, because cities are very much physical. But in order to promote the physical, you need a social reaction to it. So for instance, um, in Finland, um, they now have a policy, and they have a minister for circular economy, they have a policy where if um, uh, a developer or a need is identified for a particular type of building, whether that's a school or a hospital or a shopping center or a residential complex, they'll first scout around to see if any of the existing buildings could be regenerated. So rather than building from scratch, the response is to see how regeneration can occur 
bearing in mind principles of circular economy in terms of space use, in terms of material use, in terms of the social infrastructure that might be required. Another example is in Amsterdam. Um, there, is, there was a, um, when, I, when I was visited there um, as, as a guest of the uh, Dutch government, they were looking at a prison building which was not serving their current needs for a number of different reasons, and they were looking at rebuilding that. So in that same space, within the same side, they were looking at reusing materials that were toned down from the existing building, using these materials to make a new building. So yes, the response is often physical, but in order to enable that physical response, a social um, uh, environment needs to be created, um, and, and I think strong leadership is needed for that as well. Thank you, Usha. The challenge is with cities already being there and you're working amid existing infrastructure. Yes. Hello. Yes, hi. hi. I want to talk about um, a local example, Arden, uh, but probably illustrative of a lot of the pressures as well, too, that we balance out with economic development and sustainability. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, the narrative is 34,000 jobs, 50 hectares of land, 10, 15 minutes from the CBD. Obviously, there's a lot of pressure to develop, Arden. Um, but the reality is, and, and, they're, and they're saying, oh, the, the, the main station is going to be built to a one in a thousand year flood, um, uh, flood requirements and so forth. But the reality is we've seen that, you know, millennial floods are affecting places like Tokyo, over a dozen multi-million dollar high-speed trains that were, were flooded recently. Uh, I'm not sure it's enough, quite frankly. Uh, how do we begin to shift the narrative that treats uh, the economic imperative as the main sole driving policy uh, pressure. Yeah. I will. I mean, I, I suppose there was two things I'd make a point about, though. I mean, I think that's a site for people who don't know. We're talking about the, the old railway yards that was formerly a, a clay pit um, in North Melbourne, south of Arden Street. There's one... In one level, that's a, an economic imperative to develop the site. On the other, I think it's the possibility of an exemplar of what we should do with spaces that are redundance of the use, if you like. I mean, there's questions there about whether whether that site will deliver in terms of jobs and the housing forms we want. Um, there's obviously questions as to whether it's prone to flooding and the entire, the entire Mooney Ponds Creek is a much tortured waterway over many years. Um, so we've got an opportunity, though, I suspect, to design in ways which actually bring water into the site, which recognise that water in fact, does come up and down. I mean, we know many places in the world are highly vulnerable to floods, and some of them accept that and design with that in mind. Others don't. And so what, we, what we're offered with there, and potentially with enough pressure on people, I don't know if anyone works at the City of Melbourne, we could talk to them about it, <laughs> but with enough pressure there to think about design exemplars that show us what a site can look like that manages water, that manages green space, because it's a prime site, it's close to things, it's an opportunity to actually see something that works. And if the alternative to find housing and work for 30,000 people is to do it in some far-flung and disconnected place, then I think it's a much better alternative. It's a really hard question. How do you change um, you know, the economic imperative? I think um, uh, insurance is one world that is starting to, to change some and, and raise questions around the costs uh, and implications of, of development in, in high-risk areas. 
um, and also local governments are, are facing right now um, real questions around how are they thinking about liability and risk. And so it's a, it's a space that everyone is trying to get their heads around how do you cost future risks and how do you build that into your decision making. So it's a key question, um, it's, there's no clear answer, but that's one space that's at least where things are happening. I really grapple with the question that, or the, the reality that we've got now more people living in the city than in the countryside, first time in human history, and the implications of that. And as both in a way as a consequence, but I think also as a response to globalization. Because a lot of people don't want to live in the city, but they have no choice. So it's a bit like how, I mean, I think how do we challenge this, this, this idea? Because there's so much money tied up in real estate. I think that's one of the big things. So let's build, 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 build. And people are kind of forced to end up living in cities. And then that creates another big problem because of the whole extractivist nature of capital. So I wonder from as urban planners and stuff to living in the city, how can we, what shall we do in terms of actually creating the cities to make them really livable, but at the same time, um, is there a limit to that? Can, should we advocate also for people to be able to live in the countryside also, where they actually maybe want to live? Um, yeah, I, I think this is a really big question, because otherwise we end up having, with everybody living in the city, what's going to happen with the country? But then I'll, I'll answer, because I've actually done for a long time working on decentralisation. I would make the point that for much of human history, people wanted to live in a city but had no choice but to live in their cruel, you know, um, rural setting too. So it's a, it, there's a sense that that's, um, that's, this is just the ultimate end of a, a longer trend the other way. But the... The, the question, I suppose, which often arises in a lot of the literature, particularly around, um, well, climate adaptive, but also resilient and livable cities, is that can they be cities of 9 and 10 million people or not? Or whether, and, and in the Australian case, whether we should have everyone living in a couple of cities of 10 million people and, and everyone else just camping out, as Paul Keating would say. The, um, the, the issue to me is would those cities, those smaller cities, actually be any better? And... You know, that's questionable in itself. We know there's very good examples of small, self-contained networks of cities, and there's a lot of literature about notions of network cities and the famous examples like the Randstad in, in the Netherlands where there's a series of small livable cities that are connected and that as a model is much better than the, the sort of mega city of the never-ending suburb. Um, we in Australia, of course, have a multitude of small cities which themselves have never-ending suburbs. So, so it's questionable as to whether their size in and of themselves is what's making them problematic. We, we know that the investment in social infrastructure, particularly transport infrastructure as well, uh, is very dependent on scale in Australia. Um, that's an unfortunate consequence of how we think about funding necessary infrastructure, absolutely. Um, but whether scale in and of itself is the issue there or whether livability and localness within large metropolitan cities can be achieved through other means is something which, which the Victorian state government seems to imagine it can achieve, um, achieve through, through localisation of work and that's in a sense making multiple smaller cities. I, I think you're quite right that there's better ways to live than in cities of 9 million people but I also know having lived in places that are much smaller than that that they also in, in their own way have an absence of many of the things that you'd want to have in those places as well. And so the scale in and of itself is probably not the question for us about resilient 
cities in Australia, but rather can we do things we need to do locally? Do we have access to the infrastructure of what makes a community? And do people have alternatives and choices in meaningful work and particularly access to services? Thank you. So I'll just step back uh, a bit and this question is topping since the start, so I better uh, address that. Um, in context of Melbourne, uh, we are talking about resilience uh, and adaptation, but what, um, f facing the climate emergency, what are the specific challenges, opportunities and visions for Melbourne as opposed to other cities? Who'd like to? <laughs> it's... <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, facing the climate emergency, what are the specific challenges, opportunities, and visions for Melbourne as opposed to other cities? Okay, maybe I'll have a crack. Yeah. Okay, so maybe I'll start from my scale perspective, from the building's perspective. Um, so challenges, um, climate is changing. Um, if Melbourne becomes more like Sydney or Brisbane type of climate, we've got to really question the fundamentals of the construction techniques that we have been using. So we move from a very heavy building into a very light building structure, for example. This means that we've got to change the way the building code works. We've got to change the way cities are planned, orientation, ventilation, all these issues come into play. Opportunities, well, it's not too late. We know there's a problem, so we can still do something about it. The vision, that's, that's a hard one. Um, what's, what's my vision from a building perspective might not be the same of Andrew's vision from a planning perspective or City of Melbourne from a local government perspective. So I think it forces us to sit down and talk about it. We may not arrive all at the same type of solutions or expect to have the same type of solutions, but at least we would have an awareness of, and the limitations of um, the issues from our own discipline-centric perspective. And I think that's a great place to start. So I hope that's a bit more optimistic. Uh, I might start with challenges. Um, so I suppose for us as a local government, and I should say, so our municipality, like when people talk about Melbourne, a lot of the time they think they think Greater Melbourne, but we're actually, our municipality is only about 35 square kilometres. So um, because we're a capital city, uh, it's kind of like when we get rated world's most livable city or second most livable city, we get the credit, but it's actually Greater Melbourne. It's not the city of Melbourne. Um, but we only control, so... <laughs> true, true. Um, <laughs> uh, so we only control so much in terms of uh, emissions. So uh, we have our own operational emissions, which we can address, and we have addressed through the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. project. Um, but in terms of uh, building stock across the city, so most of our emissions come from commercial buildings and we don't necessarily have control over that. We can uh, motivate, incentivize, educate, um, advocate, all those sorts of things um, for change. And I think that's where, I suppose, there's an opportunity for us um, as a capital city. And in a lot of the work we do, we are seen as world leaders that we can, um, we can lead through demonstration. 
we can educate through different projects and research um, and hopefully motivate as well um, through some of that work. Uh, we also have the challenge of... Uh, so we talk about opportunity in terms of uh, you know, moving, transitioning from fossil fuels uh, and moving towards things like electric vehicles and whatnot, but we have the challenge currently that Victoria's energy supply comes from brown coal. So uh, us, advocate, again, advocating to state government, federal government around how we transition away from fossil fuels um, and accelerating that is uh, both a challenge and opportunity for us. Um, and then there's also, I suppose, planning schemes. So we, uh, we've got actions um, through some of our strategies to develop some planning scheme amendments, upset, update some uh, overlays within our planning scheme. Um, but again, we don't want it to just be a local policy. We want this to be something that's adopted through the planning scheme, that the Victorian government adopts through the planning scheme, um, so that we do have more uh, impact on what developers uh, actually produce across the city. So, um, yeah, I haven't touched on vision, but uh, I think, yeah, it's we have a strong role to play in that. Um, I think that education and demonstration um, space um, through yeah, different projects and whatnot. So we can do things that then show industry how it could be done or maybe not done. Um, and I think that's a huge opportunity for us. Um, I, I guess one thing to put a positive spin on climate change, um, I would say that climate change presents an opportunity for us to um, think in an integrated way about how we plan our cities. Um, so a key challenge, and it's not new, unique to Melbourne, is um, the fragmented way in which we plan and who sits where and who's, whose responsibility is where. So issues of responsibility and working together is, is a key vision, and it, it's not, again, unique to Melbourne. And it, it gets to the question before around challenging the economic imperative as being the first and foremost question when we talk about things like, for example, housing affordability, which is a key reason why we keep extending suburbs on, on the edge of the city. Um, but it, it shouldn't be a key reason um, why we... I guess one of, one of the things about the the, the city of, that, that is unique to Melbourne but reflected in many other Australian cities is that we are divided. Uh, we have an inner middle ring and we have an outer and the outer uh, is we don't talk necessarily about that as an unjust city but it is um, and what the, there are services and resources that we uh, plan for and, and provide for the outer suburbs is just not right. Uh, the way we've been planning is not right. Um, and I think we have to be much stronger. And one of the things in looking at planning um, since the 90s, so I did my PhD looking at Jeff Kennett and what happened during the 90s. And I was a planning student when Jeff Kennett came to power. So that entirely framed my entire uh, response to why I'm here right now. Um, so I qualified uh, and came out and, f and at that time the casino was being built and we had big yellow things coming out of the ground somewhere out of the um, Tullamarine. And, and the question was, uh, why are we focusing so much on being a global city and what's happened to other questions that planning ought to be about? Uh, and they weren't being dumped in other parts of the world, Vancouver and Copenhagen and various other cities around the world demonstrate that you can do lots of things at once. But we 
uh, narrowed our discourse in the 90s and it has not stopped. And it has all been about, planning is about facilitating development. And that's been relentless, and it's been relentless right tr through the 2000s, even with a discourse of sustainability. And I'm sounding quite impassioned because it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. And I, I would imagine the reason you're all here is perhaps because you see it and work with it and have done for many decades. But if my vision is anything, it's that we collectively, who's in this room and our networks, are better able to work together so that we can actually challenge the dominant discourse that sits in the planning department right now in our state government. And deep apologies to anyone in the state department of planning who's sitting in the room. Because it's not individually your fault, but there is a discourse we've all accepted and that really is about the role of the state and the collective in shaping our futures. Yeah. Uh, let me start by saying I couldn't agree more. Um, I just wanted to pipe up again for the other species that aren't people in this debate. <laughs> And, rem I mean, I think one of the great challenges that Melbourne faces, of course we know that this idea of how do we remain livable as the city grows and the climate changes is an obvious one. But for me, one of the challenges that I've been working on for the last 15 years is how do we accommodate all of these people and still protect the critically endangered ecosystems that exist right on our doorstep? So as we speak, there are no doubt grasslands, native grasslands being cleared for more more of the type of development that Andrew was showing. And this is, uh, like, I cannot emphasise how endangered this ecosystem is. There is less than 1% left of this ecosystem, and yet our planning system allows it to be cleared on the idea that we will offset it somewhere else. So you can clear that last tiny minuscule percent as long as you protect some other tiny minuscule percent somewhere else. And one of the great challenges now is we're actually running out of areas that we can protect to allow us to keep developing. So I think really asking ourselves what is the cost of the development that we're, that we're putting in at the moment, aside from the human cost, which I think is extremely high, there are definitely species that will go extinct if we keep going the way we're going. And I think the fires probably this year have kind of re-emphasised to people, you know, that cities are not immune from the types of biodiversity challenges that we think about as being out there somewhere else. And this is a challenge that we have been facing for a long time, but we don't seem to be getting any better at dealing with. But I think actually there's an opportunity now. Um, the fires have... I guess, presented in a way an opportunity for people to think, hang on a second, cities are really important places for biodiversity and actually we can make a contribution in cities that is meaningful beyond our own boundaries. And so I would hope that the, you know, the conversation can change a little bit to, to people thinking less about the human cost of, of um, urban planning and development the way it is and a little bit more about the cost to other species and asking ourselves if we've got the balance right. Thank you, everyone. I'll maybe last question, and then I'd like to wrap up uh, by seven. Um, oops. Just continuing the discussion on governance, um, is there any prohibition for the fact that we are a 
collection of councils across Greater Melbourne. Um, would there be any benefit of having a singular body that represents the, the city as opposed to the, the city of Melbourne being the inner portion? Um, I don't know if there's any examples for other international cities that do some of these things better by having a singular government's model. I know there's difficulties, obviously, with the, the state government, but how that interacts. I'm, I'm, I'm going to invite you to our forum on collaborative transport governance on March the 17th. We, we've got a speaker from Vancouver where they actually have a, a collaborative model of local governments working on transport planning. They have an integrated transport plan where all the local councils work together to decide what it will look like. So it's a little bit different. It's not one where Transurban come in a room with a kind of pile of plans and go, we want to build this. Uh, it's one where they get together and say, what should we do and how should we do that? Um, I, I'm not convinced for a moment that our problem is about councils or even council laws, notwithstanding the events of the last couple of days. I mean, this is not a climate resilient issue in general. I'm talking about as a governance issue in terms of how we think about planning. I'm not convinced that it's a pile of people who are taking a wad of cash to build more housing somewhere else beyond the plans of what they want to do. That's clearly an issue, but, but to me the main issue is firstly the level to which we actually have regard for, for community life and local democracy. Like we, you, you don't elect people like that unless no one actually knows who they are or cares, or you don't keep electing them, I suspect. Uh, and the second thing is that we know there's models from around the world where it's not about having large corporatized. Um, city councils as sort of big behemoths to make decisions, but rather it's about genuinely thinking about collaboration between communities within large cities. And it, it works in places. And I don't think there's any perfect model. And, um, you know, there's, there's lots of mistakes around different places in the world, including in Australia. But I think what we have in Australia in many instances is um, state governments with particular models, as Susie described, of, of, of growth imperatives and population management imperatives as a consequence and housing affordability imperatives dictating to local governments about how they will deliver the sorts of communities they deliver. And that's a complete flip around of the model of having local governments moving upwards and thinking about what places and placemaking might look like. And so traditions of town building, if you like, and of place building have completely been stripped out of the hands of the communities that once set about that business in many of the places that we look around at from 100 years or more ago and say, they're the sorts of places we'd like to have now. So, so I'm not convinced it's a, it's a structural issue in how we organise places, but rather it's an issue of how we regard various tiers of decision-making. Um, it's, it's a question that's um, discussed um, a lot in planning um, literature, do we need a metropolitan government? We look at Brisbane as one example and, and you know various others. And there's different models of metropolitan governance and Andrew's highlighted the Vancouver one, which is kind of more of a voluntary participatory approach. Um, I think it's not that silver bullet idea that if we just had that, it would be fine because then there would be issues around that urban rural question. And the state does have an important role to play in that question of distribution and, and where are we all living in and that ecological issue of how do we understand the city connected to our resources and catchments and so on. But from an adaptation point of view, and again, just to hit home another justice point, is um, 
all of the literature on adaptation talks about it being a local problem and it being something that needs to be dealt with locally. And a lot of local governments are doing a lot to try and get their heads around, well, what does that mean for us? And that's important and it's needed, but it's, and it's also a question of justice around whose responsibility it is to deal with adaptation, for example. And I think governance then is more... Um, about the, set, the sets of issues and problems we, we deal with. So transport and water infrastructure are, are questions that have to be addressed with at the state and metropolitan level. But there are other questions then around community building, community response, um, that perhaps are better addressed at the local. So I guess the answer is it has to be multi-level, but we need to do it better and in a more coordinated way. <coughs> oh, sorry. No, that's all right. I'll just second everything that's been said in terms of, yeah, I don't think there's a, I don't know, yeah, one approach fits all or best model, I think. Um, but, yeah, you mentioned Brisbane being a more metropolitan, like a larger metropolitan sort of um, arrangement and that in terms of a water perspective, it probably works quite well, thinking about bigger catchments. Um, but I think, yeah, collaboration is the key and across all levels of government. Um, so while adaptation, you know, like the impacts are felt locally, we sort of like to talk about that there's no brick wall around our municipal boundary that then stops, you know, the impacts from the neighbouring councils coming into us. It's, um, yeah, there's no brick wall that, yeah, blocks that. So I think water is a really good example where there's good collaboration happening between local governments and state governments through the Integrated Water Management Forums that um, Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning have established. Um, and that's taking that catchment approach um, so, for example, we're in the Yarra catchment, but also the Maribyrnong catchment, um, and that's working with all, so not just councils, but also um, water corporations and service providers, retailers, service providers, um, to look at the issues within the catchment and then what potential solutions there are. So I think that's a good example of the sort of collaboration that's needed. Um, but, of course, there's always more that we can do in that sort of space around, yeah, how we work with various levels of, um, of government and across councils and, um, and other industry bodies as well. Thank you, everyone. I'd like to some wrap up and ask all of you to leave with one key message you think would help in setting us on the path of transformation. Um, so we've looked at what adaptation means at housing level, at planning scale, uh, us valuing uh, incorporation of biodiversity, and it is co-beneficial. But until recently, uh, nature and biodiversity was not even spoken about in any disasters. It's not even present in the definition of disasters. It's just because we don't value it. So it's bringing back the ethic of care that indigenous people had and that relationship uh, with, with nature and the only planet that we can live on, Earth. So um, collaborative work has come up multiple times. And at Climate Change Transformations Group, we do co-production and bringing value by working together with multiple agencies um, and community. So um, last note that you wish to leave with uh, our audience as to what can set us on the path of adaptation. Okay, so from a building's perspective, every time you switch on the light, think about the impact. Every time you change the temperature settings, 
think about the impact. Um, and just to reiterate the point that Georgia has made, it's not just about humans, it's about everybody else. So that impact is not just about humans, it's also impacting other people. So we're part of a systemic problem and we need to find a systemic solution to it. Um, okay, I'll talk about, uh, I started with the provocation of a planning system, it doesn't work. I'd suggest it's something around the notion that we, we need to understand what evidence is in, this, in public decision making, if you like, in public reasoning. And for a long time we've accepted that that sort of evidence is stuff around what we've done before and what's worked, but, but I think we need to have, accept the fact that evidence in public reasoning is going to be about precaution and uncertainty. And that looks very different as information for public reasoning. So when it comes to something like planning decisions, it looks very different to make decisions that are about precaution and not doing things and things that we don't know about. And it requires us to accept politically that that'll come up with different sorts of solutions. It won't make some people happy. Am I allowed to say two things? I think one, the first, is that all of these things that we described, I think many people wouldn't argue with. And I think what we need is really brave, strong leadership backed up by a community who's vocal for any of these things to happen. The second thing that I think is really important, and this has come out of me watching urban greening take off in you know this really phenomenal way, but without addressing biodiversity. And I think the time has passed now where we have solutions to problems that only address one problem. We need every solution to address multiple problems. Fantastic, thank you. Um, I think just getting to the idea of um, what is um, transformation um, and it could be so many different things but uh, for me it's keeping front and centre that what we uh, need to do in planning full stop even without climate change but planning in a climate of change is that we have to try and get at the root cause of vulnerabilities and risk um, and just getting to um, Mittel's um, iceberg image of um, we're very busy twittering and yelling at each other above the water around stresses and shocks and that big iceberg at the bottom where we deal with our mental models, um, that's really where the hard work is at um, and so I think that's where transformation has to occur. Okay. Um, George stole my thunder a little bit but that's okay. Um, I'll just re I'll back it up and reiterate. Um, so I think for... From a council perspective, um, now that we've declared climate and biodiversity emergency and um, council's endorsed our response, that's set our plan. Um, so it's our council position that we can now work to as an organisation. And I think so it's very, very important that community support that and hold council to account um, be active um, in the community space. And I think that I suppose that groundswell of support, um, hopefully, will lead to more change. So I think, um, yeah, very similar to what George just said. And I also like your second point about integrating, in terms of solutions, yeah, we can't just use one thing to solve one problem. It needs to solve multiple problems, um, especially in a city like Melbourne where we have constrained space um, and conflict of interest in terms of services and all sorts of different things and infrastructure. Um, so I think, yeah, finding solutions that uh, solve more than just one problem is very, very important. Thank you to the panel. Um, please.
thank the panel. And, um, it's been um, a tough time since the last few months, and I'm sure a lot of you face that emotionally or uh, in your work. And climate emergency has come up multiple times. But there is some work happening. There is incremental change happening. So I would like to leave with a positive note that though it does seem doom and gloom everywhere, but there is action, small steps happening everywhere. Um, and just after this, if it seemed like a very heavy uh, session, there is a comedy, climate comedy session happening just opposite the street. Um, it's called Panic, To Panic or Not To Panic by Alanta Kohli. Thank you for staying. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.